Well, let's jump into our message this morning, beginnings, uh, as we are working our way through Genesis today, the 12 sons of Jacob. I, I hope you've enjoyed our, our brief trip through the first book of the Bible, the, the book of Genesis. Uh, it hasn't been an exhaustive study. We're not doing verse by verse every single chapter. Uh, but we've tried to hit some, some highlights of Genesis as we've gone along, uh, of the many beginnings uh, that we find in the book of Genesis. God chose Abraham's grandson Jacob to continue the beginnings of his new nation, Israel. Uh, and the nation, this is the nation that would eventually bring us Jesus. That was the whole purpose of it. So this morning we're going to take a closer look at the 12 sons of Jacob and see what a great relationship they had with each other. <laughs> well, maybe not so great. Maybe not so great as we are going to see. Uh, first, let's meet the family. Uh, it's Jacob, who's the patriarch. He's the husband. He's the dad. He had two wives, Rachel and Leah. They were sisters. We talked a little bit about them last week. Uh, and then there were two servant concubine wives uh, that we'll talk about in a minute uh, uh, that uh, were also a part of the family. Um, uh, things got off to a rocky start with this new family as Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved, uh, realized soon that she was not able to have children. Leah, the wife that Jacob did not love, uh, she found that she could have children, and, and lots of them. In fact, Leah gave Jacob four strapping young boys right off the bat. And as you can imagine, when Rachel saw that uh, all these sons that her sister Leah were were given uh, Jacob, she was not happy with that. You know, in that culture, having children gave you a purpose in your marriage. It gave you a purpose in life, really, for a woman. Women often felt shame if they could not have children uh, and also felt that people were looking down on them, and often they were looking down on them. Here was uh, Rachel's feelings about this and the action that she took uh, to... to, to hopefully make things better let's look at genesis chapter 30 verse 1 through 3 when Je when rachel saw that she was not bearing jacob any children she became jealous of her sister so she said to jacob give me children or i'll die <laughs> jacob became angry with her and said am i in the place of god who has kept you from having children then she said here is belha my servant sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. Well, the ancient world was culturally, culturally very different than our own culture, as, as we saw with Abraham and Sarah and Sarah's servant Hagar. <clears throat> Rachel decided that one way that she could have some semblance of having a child would be if, is to have her servant be a surrogate mother. Uh, for her. So her servant Belhah would conceive by Jacob, but Rachel could claim her child as her own. Kind of crazy, but that's the way they did things back then. Uh, let's look at verse 4 through 6. So she gave him her servant Belhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. 
Rachel gave her servant, Belhah, to Jacob as a wife. She's often called a wife uh, throughout this, this time. Um, she conceived, Belhah conceived, and gave Jacob a son. Rachel claimed him as her own uh, and named him Dan, which means vindicated. All the, back in those days, they would name their children uh, for a certain reason, because of what the word meant, and Dan meant vindicated, because she felt vindicated now that she had a son, sort of. <laughs> then Belhah had another son. Rachel named him Nephtali, which means my struggle, the struggle that she was having with her sister, or the rivalry that they were having uh, in trying to please their husband with children. Well, then Leah uh, wanted to get in on the action, uh, and seeing that Leah was not having children anymore, she decided to give her servant Zilpah to Jacob, just like Rachel had given her servant, uh, so that she could sort of one-up her sister in the giving her husband children game that they were playing. Uh, so Zilpah, Jacob's second servant wife, gave Jacob a son that Leah named Gad. And so Leah named it, and Leah claimed it at her, as her own. Uh, Gad means good fortune, uh, as Leah, Leah felt blessed uh, that she was able to give Jacob another son. And like Bilhah, Zilpah gave Jacob a second son. Leah named him Asher, which means happy, because Asher made her happy. The next phase of childbearing gets a little crazy. Well, it's already crazy. It's already crazy, but it, it gets even crazier with this family. The oldest son, Reuben, decides one day that he's going to give his mother, Leah, some mandrakes as a gift. Uh, you know, like we might give our mother flowers on Mother's Day. Well, it seems that some believe during that time that uh, mandrakes were helpful as a fertility aid. Rachel, seeing that Leah had received these mandrakes, uh, asked her sister if she could have some. Can I have some of those mandrakes that your son gave you? Um, perhaps Rachel thought, why not? Why not? I've tried everything else. Uh, maybe this might help. These mandrakes might help me conceive. So here was the, the conversation that they had about this, uh, verse 15. But she, Leah, said to her, Rachel, wasn't it enough that you took, my, took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. <laughs> Apparently, Leah had not, uh, had, uh, had not been intimate with Jacob for a while, and Rachel seems to have some kind of control in this marriage over the sleeping arrangements, uh, perhaps because she was the favored wife, and she had that control. And Rachel's desire for these mandrakes and the possibility that they might help her conceive a child of her own, it was strong enough to be willing, for her to be willing to allow her sister to be with her husband, with their husband, Jacob. Whew, the ancient world uh, could be very strange, couldn't it? Further illustrated by what Leah said to Jacob about all this. Verse 16, he, she said, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. 
Well, she conceived again and gave Jacob a fifth son, and she named him Issachar, which means reward. She said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. Mm, okay. Uh, so if you're looking for dysfunctional, you are not disappointed with this family, are you? So apparently Rachel uh, left the door open for Leah to uh, for Leah in the sleeping arrangements because she became she conceived again and gave Jacob a sixth son. She named him Zebulun, which means honor, as she continued to hope that Jacob would honor her. Remember, we talked about last week, Leah uh, didn't feel very loved by her husband. Leah seems to continue to praise God through all of this, but she still has hope that her husband one day will actually love her. Leah also gave birth to a daughter, Dinah. So it wasn't all boys. Uh, in fact, we, we read in several places that there were, there were daughters, there were, there were plural, many daughters, or, or at least two anyway, um, and, but Dinah is the only one that is named here in Scripture, and then that's uh, because there's a story that takes place with her uh, as a main character. You might read a little bit uh, ahead and see that story of Dinah as she has an encounter with some people uh, uh, in the surrounding area. Um, and then finally, after ten sons, God enabled Rachel to finally have a child of her own. Verse 23 and 24, she became pregnant, Rachel did, and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Uh, Joseph means, may he add. Uh, you know, if one son is good, then, then more is better, right? So she prayed that God would, would bless her with more uh, and use that as part of her son's name. Now, th this was a cultural stigma on women who bore no children for their husbands. Uh, you know, and no one wants a stigma on them. Uh, you know, so you could see how any woman would welcome an opportunity uh, for all the busybodies in town to stop talking about you, um, which she probably felt that they were. People can be cruel sometimes, can't they? Uh, we all agree that that's true. We all agree that talking about people uh, behind their backs or even in their faces is, is a horrible thing. Yet how often do we join in the cruelty with uh, the gossip that we're involved with at work or even at church sometimes? And as we talked about last week, uh, we need to always put other people in ahead of, our, of ourselves, which, which means, you know, gossip is, is always wrong because it hurts people. Uh, as we are being busybodies uh, with what we say. So now Jacob had 11 sons. They were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. Now several years later, God would bless Rachel with one more child, uh, and his name would be Benjamin. Jacob would give him that name. Uh, because Rachel sadly died during her, her childbirth. So let's fast forward to a time when all but the youngest son Joseph is grown, is an adult. Benjamin is not yet born yet, not yet born, and Joseph is 17. So he's almost an adult. Uh, he's right in that in-between uh, of being an adult. 
Now, the 1890s <clears throat> B.C., when, uh, when Joseph was 17, was very different from our world today uh, for a 17-year-old for and for a 71-year-old. It was very different, as we've seen so far, with how things were working in, in this family. But, you know, in many ways in the 1890s, things were very much the same, uh, especially when it came to family relationships. In the 1890s B.C., little brothers could be very annoying to their older brothers, and older brothers could be very cruel to their younger brothers. Uh, and parents could be oblivious to their children's needs and feelings, just like today. So a lot of things have not changed, and we see that bear out in this family. Uh, let's read about a, a very important family dynamic that, that, that helped shape the direction of Jacob's family and, subsequently, God's nation, Israel. For, a hundred, for hundreds of years. Let's read Genesis 37, verse 1 through 4. <clears throat> Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. <clears throat> when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. They hate, his brothers hated Joseph. Now right off the bat, uh, we see a family that is already... <laughs> in a pretty bad state. You know, we had a dad who loves one son, Joseph, more than his other sons. <clears throat> Apparently doesn't make any, any uh, attempt to hide that. To include receiving this special ornate robe, the coat of many colors, we sometimes call it, uh, from his dad, that none of the other sons received a coat. Um, that favored son looks like he might be a bit of a tattletale, uh, against his older brothers, he brought a bad report to dad about how they weren't tending the sheep right. Um, and because of the father's feelings and Joseph's behavior, Joseph's brothers hated him. They hated him. They could not speak a kind word to him. You know, I could imagine the second one couldn't speak a kind word to him. I remember times as a kid when I struggled to speak a kind word to my sister who was five years older than me. Uh, but, you know, I never hated my sister. Uh, sometimes we didn't get along, but I never hated her. Uh, we love each other now, and we get along great, but, uh, you know, when you're kids, things are different. <clears throat> Joseph's brothers hated him. A and as we continue to read the story, we begin to get a better idea of why they hated him. Let's look at verse uh, 5 through 8. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. <clears throat> we were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and what he had said. You know, this was a, 
a vision that told of how Joseph's brothers would one day bow down to him. It's a prophecy uh, that did come true. Now, what, what do we have so far? Uh, again, a father who openly, admittedly loves his younger son more than his older ten sons, even gives his, his favorite son a special gift, the ornate robe. A younger son, Joseph, who wears his ornate robe regularly, flaunting his father's favoritism. A younger brother who makes a point to bring his father bad reports about the way that his older brothers are, are caring for the livestock. Um, to, to use a more modern term, Joseph was regularly throwing his brothers under the bus. Now Joseph decided it would be a good idea to tell his brothers about this dream that he had. Now, I don't know about you, but most of my dreams uh, consist of crazy things like uh, me trying to run from a lawnmower salesman who's trying to sell me a new pair of jeans that turn out to be a trip to the grocery store to buy lemons to have a picnic with my grandmother. I mean, that, that's, uh, and, and that kind of the way your dreams, you go, what in the world was that? It, it seems important at the time, you know, like, wow, this is, this is crazy. But then you wake up and go, what in the world was that all about? Crazy. My, my dreams don't make any sense, and I'd never, ever think that they have anything to do with my future <laughs> and predicting uh, my future. And if, if so, boy, I've got a bizarre future ahead of me, and I bet you do too. <clears throat> so what was it Ebenezer Scrooge said about the ghost of Marley that visited him. He said, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. Uh, you know, my, my dreams are likely more about what I ate than some complicated meaning about my future. Uh, but many of the dreams that we read about in the Bible seem to be uh, more like visions than the common dreams that we have. Um, and, and many of them were given to individuals by God. So they were a message from God. Uh, you and I have the Bible. We don't need dreams today. We have the Bible. We can open up that and we can find out what God's will is for our lives from, from the Bible. But, but there was no Bible in Joseph's day, not even the Old Testament. That wouldn't come until Moses received the law of Moses on Mount Sinai. So sometimes during that time, God would communicate a message to people through a dream or a vision. And while this was true for, for, for Joseph, these dreams were given to him by God, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to tell them <laughs> to your brothers who already hate you. Uh, you know, wisdom would say, if you want to repair your relationship with your brothers, you know, keep these dreams to yourself. This isn't going to help. <laughs> Revealing them only is going to make things worse. Yet, Joseph did it anyway. He told the dream anyway. Now, why would he do that, you think? You know, it could have been because he was 17. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, my smartest time in my life was probably not when I was 17. Uh, uh, the, reason, the reasoning and decision-making part of the brain may not have been fully developed. Joe could probably tell you a little bit about that uh, with, with his work. <clears throat> uh, and, and yet, it seemed like a good idea to Joseph. I'm going to tell my brothers about this dream. Boy, they'll, they'll think that's something. He just wasn't thinking, maybe. Or it could be that he was actually thinking. Uh, and, and he was just trying to rub some sand in the wound. Uh, I would imagine that because they hated him, they probably didn't treat him very well. 
uh, probably they got the last biscuit and then uh, at mealtimes and he didn't have one. Uh, or, or maybe they always referred him to him as the baby and, and daddy's pet. Uh, and maybe they left him all the dirty jobs to do around the farm. Uh, it, you know, it was 10 against 1 for Joseph. Maybe Joseph had had enough of their ribbing uh, and their abuse. So he gladly told them this dream that, well, one day I'm going to rule over you. You're going to bow down to me. <clears throat> you know, one thing I've learned in life is you don't poke an angry person. You just don't do that. Uh, it, it usually turns out, it doesn't turn out well for you when you poke an angry person. Uh, because when you poke an angry person, what happens? They get angrier. It never helps. It never helps to say something smart to them. They don't go, oh, you know, you're right. I shouldn't be, I put, shouldn't be this way. No, they just get angrier. Uh, Joseph was 17. He, he had not learned that yet. In fact, Joseph still had a lot to learn in life. Uh, we usually think of Joseph as, as what? Just this wise, gentle, virtuous man who always made such wise decisions in life. And eventually he would be that man. <clears throat> but obviously he was not there yet in his life. In fact, it looks like here he have, may have been trying to hurt his brothers. But of course, after this first dream, we see that Joseph quickly learned his lesson, right? Uh, uh, bad idea, telling my brother about my dream. Nope. Lesson not learned. Lesson not learned. Later, Joseph had another dream, another vision, likely from God. <clears throat> Let's read what that one's about, verse 9. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to me. Now, this dream not only predicted that his brothers would bow down to him, but that his father and mother would also bow down to him. The sun and the moon representing his mom and dad, the stars representing his brothers. <clears throat> and it wasn't enough to, to tell his brothers this time uh, uh, that he, he had had this dream, but he even told his father this time, I guess because his father was involved in this one. But his father, who certainly had made some pretty unwise decisions uh, in this story himself, saw very quickly that this was a mistake for Joseph to do this. Let's look at verse 10 and 11. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. <clears throat> Dad scolded Joseph for his arrogance. Um, maybe he was okay with uh, his favorite son ruling over his other sons, but to say that dad would bow down to him, well, that's going too far. It's almost like Jacob was saying, you know, what, what have I done to cause him to, to think like this? Perhaps Jacob's eyes were opened to see maybe the, some of the mistakes he had made in favoring Joseph over the others. The story only gets worse, though. Let's read on, verse 12 through 14. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to them, 
Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Now, this can't turn out good for Joseph, can it? Uh, He's being sent by his dad, who likely doesn't realize the degree of hatred that his, his older brothers had towards Joseph. And Jacob sends Joseph far away uh, from home to check on his brothers to see how things are going. Jacob might be older than 17, but he's, he's not being very smart here as he sends his son, his youngest son, off. So Joseph heads out to find his brothers when he eventually discovers where they are. And as he is approaching them from afar, his brothers see the little tattletale, dreamer, spoiled, rotten, arrogant, fancy code brother coming down the field, coming across the hill, uh, or across the horizon. There he goes. Let's look at verse 18 uh, through 20. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And as you can see, uh, their feelings about their youngest brother have, have advanced far beyond simple disgust and jealousy. Uh, it has moved into a, a plan now to murder him, to murder him. How angry do you have to be to murder your own brother? How long had these feelings been simmering inside of them? How many times had they had to listen to their father praise Joseph, but fail to give only praise to, to them, just criticism to them? Perhaps all they had ever received from their father was criticism. How long had the fire been burning in their hearts against Joseph and against their father as well? Probably about 17 years. (laughs) You know, that's a long time for hatred to build. Uh, And it was coming to a head as they watched their brother approach over the horizon. Now, there was some good news for Joseph in this and and the brothers while all of them shared hatred for joseph not all of them were on on board for murdering him Uh, in fact two of them reuben and judah separately schemed to spare joseph's life Uh, they were two of the older wiser brothers who were able to see beyond their immediate feelings of anger and hatred to what the consequences of murder would be to themselves and for their father Let's look at Reuben's scheme first, verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. He struggled uh, he suggested that they just throw him in this. Now, cistern is a, is a big uh, stone uh, container or tank that's in the ground, and it's used to collect water. This, this one did not have water in it. Um, but let's just throw him in the cistern, Reuben suggested, and, and, and we'll just let him die of starvation. That way he would still die, but they, they'd be rid of him, but they wouldn't actually have killed him. Of course, that was flawed reasoning. It would still be 
murder. But Reuben's plan was to then secretly sneak back and take Joseph out and take him back to his father. Reuben understood how devastating this would be to his father to lose a son. And so I would imagine as he's taking him back to his father, he would have said, had a long talk with his little brother. Come on, come on, Joseph, can't you see what's going on here? Can't you see how you tell these dreams and it makes, it makes us angry? Maybe he would have uh, had a discussion with Joseph on the way back. And so they agreed, verse 23. So when Joseph came to uh, his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, interestingly, Joseph is, is wearing his ornate robe. You know, he, he's not giving up this desire to just rub it in the face of uh, his brothers, how his father loves him more than them. Usually that, that kind of robe would be something that's worn on, worn on special occasions. But Joseph makes sure that he has it on <laughs> as he comes to check on his brothers to see what they were doing and report back to the dead. They threw him in the cistern to die, and then they sit down to have a delicious meal while he's in the cistern. Now, how callous had they become to their brother Joseph? And as they're eating, they see this caravan approaching. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianites merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, this was Judah's scheme to save Joseph. Uh, his scheme was, let's don't kill him, let's just sell him. And then, and then he's still alive, but he's just you know, out of our, our hair now. So that was Judah's way of saving his brother. For some unknown reason, though, Reuben is not with them as this caravan comes by. Uh, he's not there to try to stop them from selling Joseph. Again, uh, you know, how much hatred do you have to have for your brother to sell him as a slave? 17 years, apparently. Um, then Reuben arrives from wherever he was, <clears throat> 29. Then Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there. He tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't here. Where can I turn now? Now what? What have we done, guys? What have we done? Maybe he revealed his plan that, to rescue him. You know, I was going to rescue him and take him back to dad. You know, maybe he scolded them for selling him as they did. Now what? Now what are we going to do? How do we cover this up? That often happens when we act on our emotions in a sinful way. Afterwards, we regret uh, that what we've done, and it cannot be fixed, whatever it was. Uh, the damage is done. It can't be taken back. A harsh word that we say to our spouse uh, or to someone in our life that really hurts them deeply. And once the word is out, you can't take it back. You can't say, well, I didn't really mean that. It's done. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, 
slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and they said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has truly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. You know, it didn't take long for the brothers to regret what they had done. You know, after they saw their father's grief caused by them, they were sorry. They weren't happy with their father's favoritism, but they still loved him very much. And now they had to spend the rest of their lives living with what they had done. Perhaps the only good, good news was that no one would ever know, or would they? Verse 36, meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And the story continues. <clears throat> you know, a tragic result from an extremely complicated and dysfunctional family filled with all kinds of emotional baggage that had built up from years of unwise behavior. Wow, that's this kind of story. What are some take-homes that we can... Uh, apply to our lives from this this dysfunctional family well there's all kinds of things we could probably pick out uh, but I've just picked out two things um, first be mindful of the way your behavior affects people in your life be mindful of the way your behavior affects people in your life either Jacob didn't care or, or just never stopped to think about how his favoritism towards Joseph would affect his older sons. You know, parents, parents of kids still at home or adult kids, because it applies to both. You know, don't assume how your children feel. Don't assume how your children feel. You know, sometimes it's tempting to emphasize our attention to a troubled child, and thus neglect our child that seems to have it all together. You know, and we reason, when we do that, we reason, well, our child that has it all together, they'll be okay because they got it all together. So I'll focus all of my attention on my troubled child. You know, and when that happens, no matter what you meant by doing that, the message that the stable child receives is, mom and dad love my troubled child sibling more than they love me you know i try to do what's right and my sibling who's always in trouble gets all the attention you know parents let, let, let's not assume that our stable child knows that we love them or that any of our children know that we love them let's don't assume it let's tell them as much as we possibly can Let's make the same effort to show our love to all of our children. And in fact, this applies to any relationship, not just a parent-child relationship. You know, don't take anyone's feelings for granted. You know, don't assume a coworker or someone that you supervise or someone who serves at church knows that you appreciate their hard work. How do we reward a good worker? 
by giving them more work. Yeah, yeah, by giving them, you know, the work that the slackers don't do. They, well, we know that this person will do it because they're a good worker. We'll just give them everything. And then the slackers seem to get by sometimes. You know, let's make sure that everyone, whether they're a good worker or not, everyone in our, in our relationships know that we appreciate that we love them. Never take for granted someone's feelings. And secondly, be mindful of the way your feelings are leading you to behave. Be mindful of the way your feelings are leading you to behave. Um, someone is neglecting you. Uh, someone seems to be favoring someone else uh, that, that you think they don't deserve it because of their behavior. Someone's being unfair. Someone's being unkind to you. Now, while these actions, real or imagined, make you feel hurt, make you feel angry, anger or jealousy towards them or to the other person, don't let them and what they're doing and, and their misconduct lead you to doing something that is equally wrong. You know, hatred, like hatred, revenge, spite, uncontrolled anger. You know, that's what your flesh wants to do. Our flesh wants to strike back when someone's behaving unkindly to us. We want to strike back with unkindness too. That's what our flesh wants to do. But it's not what someone who is walking in step with the Holy Spirit does. The fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. We talk about that a lot and we need to talk about it as much as possible because it's so important. It's the key to living a Christ-like life. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that the Spirit of God produces in our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. You know, this is fruit that we produce not for ourselves to enjoy, but it's fruit that we produce for others, for everyone in our life. You know, even those who may not treat us like we think they should. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is especially meant to use towards people who don't treat us like we think they should. You know, it's, it's easy to love someone who's loving you. It's easy to be kind to someone who's, who's being kind to you. The challenge is to love and be kind to those that we feel aren't being that way to us. The, help, the Holy Spirit can help us do that. And God wants us to do that, even though our flesh doesn't. Jacob's family was dysfunctional, to say the least. But you know what? God still used that family to build his nation. And God's not looking for perfect people. Uh, if he was, he'd never find anybody to do anything for him because he knows that none of us are, are perfect. Perfect people don't exist. But he is looking for imperfect people who are willing to serve him and are willing to let their lives be led by the Holy Spirit. So let's let God take our dysfunctional lives. We look at Joseph's life and Jacob's family and we think, wow, boy, they, they were, they're so dysfunctional. But don't we have dysfunction in our lives and in our families too in some ways? Let's let God take our dysfunctional lives and shape them into lives that can help share the love of Christ to a world that is lost. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this, the story of this dysfunctional family, uh, the story of this 
this family that, that struggled to treat each other right, that struggled to, uh, a, a parent that just either uh, naively or unwisely chose to favor one son over another, um, uh, siblings who, who turned on each other, uh, who let hate build up inside of them, siblings who, who went out of their way to rub things in, Lord, it, it's, it's, a, it's a family dynamic that maybe we've seen in our own families uh, and in our own relationships. We thank you for stories like this uh, that can help us see, first, that you don't, you're not looking for perfect people to serve you in your kingdom because none of us are. But you are looking for people who, uh, in our imperfections, are willing to take the Holy Spirit that's inside of us and, and change us and begin to be men and women who produce the fruit of, of your spirit uh, that can overcome that bad behavior. And so I just pray, Father, that we can take this, this story and, and realize that we don't have to be like that because of your power that's in us. And so, Father, help us to be aware of people's feelings, to think about it, to be conscious about it, to think about what we say and, how, and what we do and how it affects people in our lives, and also be aware of, of how other people's behavior makes us behave, that we can always overcome that and do what's right. So, Father, thank you so much uh, for this story. Help us to, to be more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name.